Everyone, please turn in God's Word to Matthew chapter 21. We've been in Matthew's Gospel, beginning a look at the last week of the life of Jesus and His teachings as He enters Jerusalem. This morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 21. I'll be reading verses 23 through 32. Hear now the Word of the Lord. And when He entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to Him as He was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? They discussed it among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... We are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? If a man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And then he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if you've ever gotten, like I have, a letter, an email, phone call claiming to be from the IRS and telling you that due to unpaid funds, you were going to be penalized and you had to respond immediately with your bank account info. Uh, Now, it's a serious thing. If it really was the IRS, of course, you want to respond. If not, you just tear up the letter, hang up the phone, delete the email. Or more seriously, even we teach our children that if someone comes up to you and says, Oh, hey, your, your mommy and your daddy wanted me to pick you up. You need to get in my car. We teach them that you say, no. No, by what authority do you do this? You don't have the right authority to do this. Last week, we saw a private miracle done in front of the disciples and some private teaching that Jesus gave to them. And before that, recall, before the fig tree withered, we saw that Jesus had chased out of the temple those who had turned God's temple into a place where worship was a, a, something that did not have the heart that God desired. It was a false form of worship, a faith that sings hallelujah and speaks of being delivered, but isn't honoring God. Like a fig tree with lush green leaves and no fruit. So after walking into the temple like he owned the place, making a big fuss, telling people what they were allowed and not allowed to do, And then telling children it was okay to speak of him as if he was God's chosen deliverer. Naturally, some people have some concerns and they want to know, who told you that you could do that? What is your authority? Are you trying to scam us? Are you trying to deceive us? What authority do you have? And that's a a fair question. Is Jesus someone that we need to listen to? Can we ignore him? Can we take his words as suggestions? One of many possible ideas for us to consider. Or do we listen and obey? 
We face those questions even today. Do we reject the commands of God, the command of the Father? Do we consider it but not fully? Or do we respond the way He tells us to? And we want to be warned that we can deceive ourselves even into thinking that we are obeying God while still actually rejecting His authority over us and not obeying Him in the way that pleases Him. So let us see what Jesus tells us about how to respond when the Father commands. The first thing we see is one of the bad responses, avoiding obedience. In verse 23, these these people come to Him with their objections. Uh, The chief priests and the elders of the people come to Jesus as He's teaching, saying, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now let me translate to you what they're actually saying. They're actually saying, Jesus, why should we listen to you? In my college days, uh, I had a job for a while as a parking lot monitor, which means I was effectively a human barrier that stood in the entrance to a parking lot. And as anyone tried to park in one of those limited, precious spaces, my job was to look at their parking tag and see if they were allowed in that particular lot. And if they were not allowed in that lot, you shall not pass! And it usually worked. Uh, But if they were allowed in that lot, I stepped aside and let them in. Now, I didn't just make up rules about who I wanted. I didn't let my friends in keep out other people. No, I was abiding by a higher authority. The university had set the rules. Who was allowed in there and who was not? So that when a professor, or even as once happened, the president of the university who had forgotten his parking tag for that day, tries to enter not according to the rules, and they would argue with me. Do you really think I have to listen to you? Who are you to stop me? You see, their their issue was, they thought, with me. But really, they needed to take it up with the higher authority on whose behalf I spoke. They were committing what philosophers and, and teachers of logic call a genetic fallacy which is when you you rule out something, an argument or a statement, not based on how true it is, but based on who says it. You see, these people are trying to get into my parking lot, and they're saying, you are just an undergraduate student. I am a professor. Therefore, your rules don't apply to me. But no, it doesn't matter who says the rules if the right authority has established them. And that is what is happening here. These chief priests and these elders are coming up to Jesus, and they're saying, Why do we have to listen to you? And what they don't realize is that Jesus, from the moment Matthew records him entering the temple, the words that Matthew records are all quotes from Scripture. He is quoting the Word of God as he casts the money changers out of the temple, as he encourages the children to sing praises. He is quoting Scripture. Even if he wasn't the Son of God, his words had authority. The Lord spoke through a donkey once to Balaam. Did that make it any less true? No. It doesn't matter who speaks the words. What matters is, are they true? So the problem isn't, as it would maybe seem to be, hey, we don't know if we're supposed to listen to this guy. We need to check his credentials and see, does he have the authority to do this? That's not what's on their heart. Really, the question is, how can we get out of having to do what this man tells us to do. Jesus knows that. He knows our hearts through and through. He's going to mention later on, he's going to say, look, the problem is that you didn't believe John. 
You don't believe. That's why you don't want to listen to me. It's because you're predisposed not to. And so he gives them a trap of his own. See, they were trying to trap Jesus. If he said, my authority comes from God, well, then he was in danger of being tried for blasphemy. But if he said, my authority comes from my own authority, well, then why would they have to listen to him? So they're trying to trap him in his words. But Jesus responds with his own trap in verses 24 and 25. He asks them about John. And he says, look, I'll ask you this question. And if you answer me this question, I'll give you an answer to your question. Where did John's authority come from? From heaven or from man? You see, because John the baptizer had called people to repent. And if his authority came from God, then the chief priests and the elders who had rejected John's call, well, then they were guilty. But Jesus has already said he doesn't need to prove his authority to anyone. He'd already proved it in John 10. Verses 24 through 26, the Jews gather around Jesus and they say, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, just tell us plainly. And he says, I already told you, and you didn't believe these works that I'm doing. Everything I've been doing shows they bear witness about me. You don't believe because you're not among my sheep. You don't want to believe. He says, look, I've already answered your question with what I've done. So let me prove to you that you have no intention of following an honest answer to that question. And as they hear his trap, they see what he's done. And in verses 25 through 26, they have this little conversation. Well, if we say it's John's authority is from God, we're in trouble because we didn't listen to John. But we, know, we believe his authority was from man. But if we say that, we're in trouble because we care more about what the people say than anything else. And they think he's a prophet. So they're stuck. They're either going to condemn themselves or they're going to lose popularity with the crowds. And so they cop out in verse 27 and they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, then I have no reason to tell you the answer to your question. So, so that sets the stage. The question is, what does that have to do with any of us? For most of us, hopefully, hopefully we're not doing this. I hope that none of you are seeking to avoid Jesus, and you're looking for a way out of obedience. However, I know my own heart, and I know the tendency of the human heart is to not follow anything that we feel doesn't put us in control. Jesus is Lord, which means He has authority over every area of our life. And since the temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden, the lie of the serpent has gone like this. Uh, the Lord had said to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit out of this one particular tree, and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the serpent comes to Eve and tempts her. And look what happens in Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. You, you see the very subtle thing that happened there. God commands one thing, and He says, on my authority, this is what you must obey. But the serpent says, why do you need to take His word for it? Why do you need to just go on God's authority? You've got eyes, don't you? Look at that. Doesn't it look good? And what does Eve do? Eve, it says, sees that it was a delight to her eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise. Well, 
At that moment, she rejected God's authority. And what did she put in its place? Her own authority. She put herself in control there and said, I'm going to decide what's good. God said this is bad. But I'm going to look at it and make my own judgment and my own decision about what is right and what is good and what is proper like a rebellious child who shouts to a parent, you can't tell me what to do. Don't hit the pulpit. I'm going to tell myself what to do. You can't tell me what to do, says the rebellious child. We say that in our own hearts to almost any authority, especially to God. We say, your word says do this. I don't want to. Your word says avoid that. I don't want to. We become like sheep, trying to take the staff away from the shepherd's hand and lead ourselves. How easy is it for us to hold off on following Jesus, on living God's way, because we feel comfortable with Jesus having authority in one area, telling us about heaven. But we see him kind of like the DMV, right? The DMV has absolute authority to tell me whether or not I may have a driver's license and to issue a license plate and to do a limited number of things. But the DMV has no business telling me how to plan my budget or what I should eat for dinner or anything else. You keep to your own lane, DMV. Let me run my life everywhere else. We do that. Jesus, tell me about heaven. Tell me about faith. Tell me about religion. But stay in your lane. And let me do what I want to do everywhere else. We avoid the authority. Just as a chief priest and the elders looked to the authority of their tradition to tell them what worship should be like, then Jesus had to come in and say, no, it's not like that. We look to the authority of other things. We look to what 90% or 95% of the culture thinks is right. And we say, well, how can something that everybody else likes and approves of be wrong? So God says it's wrong, but everybody else says it's right. I'm going to go with what's popular here. We've looked to that authority. Or we look to the authority of what works, what's easy, what's pragmatic, what gets the quick results, what makes us popular. You know, we, we see God's word about how we should handle our money and how we should give generously and live within our means. And, and we instead say, no, but if I do that, I, I'm not going to be as ready for retirement as I want to be. Or I'm not going to live in the kind of home I want to live in. Don't be fooled, friends. If you reject the authority of Jesus, you are not then free. You instead have enslaved yourself to another authority, the authority of the culture the authority of the crowd, the authority of your own desires. Bob Dylan said it. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Rejecting the authority and avoiding the authority of Jesus and avoiding obedience does not therefore make you free. It merely puts you under another authority. So that's one failed response to the Father's command is avoiding obedience. There's another failed response. Jesus introduces the next two types of obedience. In a parable, verse 28 begins, what do you think? What do you think? The man had two sons, and he goes to the first and says, son, go and work in my vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And then he went to the other son and said the same thing. Son, go and work in my vineyard. And he said, I go, sir. And then he didn't. Let's look at both of them. I want to look at the second son first. 
He is an example of what I would call insufficient obedience. Insufficient means not enough. Notice first that this man is not making suggestions to his sons. Hey, son, why don't you go clean your room? Does that ever work? You know, I get frustrated when people introduce a command to me in the phrasing of, do you want to? Hey, do you want to go get that for me? Do you want to take the trash out? I don't really want to. He's not going to his son saying, hey, do you want to go work in the vineyard? He says, son, go. Do this. This is a command, and you are called to obey. And the second son responds with the apparent intention to obey, saying, sure, dad. Yes, I will do what you say. And then he doesn't do it. And if that's all the information we had, we would think that this son is what? A liar. Because he said he would do something and he didn't do it. And unless you're a politician, you can't get away with that. You say you do something, you've got to do it. But we have more. If we look at verse 32, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus is doing is saying, look, you chief priests, elders, hyper-religious people, you are like the son who says, I'm going to obey God, but when it was shown to you, revealed to you, that you are not, in fact, obeying God, and you're called to repent, you didn't do it. You, you just give the form, the appearance of obedience, the language of obedience, but without the substance. So what we have in the chief priests and the elders and many others in Jesus' day, just as in our day, is people who intend to follow God's way, like the son who said, I'm going to do what you asked me to do. But we get it wrong. We don't outright reject Jesus and His authority, but we also don't do what He says. Perhaps not intentionally. There were many in Jesus' day who in their effort to please God had gotten sidetracked. They had gotten misled down a path that was far from God's heart. So much so that when Jesus would heal someone on a Sabbath, they got more upset that something was done on the Sabbath than excited about the fact that a broken body was miraculously healed or, or the temple the, was to be the house of prayer for all nations, for the Gentiles to come in and seek the Lord had become a place of exclusion or the law that had been given to show a path of life and joy and peace. That law had become a weapon with which to control and oppress people. Sons, daughters, go work in my vineyard. Go build my kingdom. Go declare my glory among the nations. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Yes, Father, we will do it. But then they get busy doing things that have little to do with working in the vineyard. The people Jesus is criticizing had a form of good religion. And by form, I mean the appearance of good religion. If you looked at them, they seemed, they appeared like good, godly people because they had found a few things in God's law that they paid particular attention to and over which they were very devout and fastidious and they, they took great care to obey God's law in these few areas. But they had missed the big picture. Jesus would later critique them and condemn them in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting 
the others. You see, the, the problem wasn't that they were doing everything wrong. The problem was they weren't doing everything that was right. He says you're tithing your spices. Can you imagine? You, you go to Publix and you buy a, a, a little, what's it called? There's a special word for it. I can't remember. A container of, uh, of mint. And you come home and, and you, you measure it out and you set aside a tenth of it and bring it and drop it in the offering plate. Okay, that, that's how serious they were about the call to give 10% of all that they had. They were good at that. But they neglected justice. They neglected mercy. They neglected faithfulness. And Jesus said, okay, I'm not saying it was bad of you to, to be serious about the tithe. What I'm saying is, it's not just that. You, you can't do just one or two things or just these things and neglect everything else the Father has commanded. You have to do it all. And so when John and then Jesus come to them, as verse 32 says, comes in the way of righteousness, which means showing them the right way, what would a good, obedient follower do? If you're going off the wrong way and somebody earnestly, sincerely shows you, actually, if you want to go to the place you're going, you have to go down this way. Okay, Some of us in our stubbornness and our pride, we're just going to keep going that way because you can't tell me what to do. But if we are serious about following and going the right way, we will repent, we will turn, we will change our direction. And John and Jesus come to them in the way of righteousness and say, this way that you're going, it seems righteous. You're saying, yes, Father, I will obey you, but you're not going the way He's told you to go. You're neglecting justice. You're neglecting mercy. You're neglecting faithfulness. When that happens, our obedience is insufficient. It's not enough. It's not enough to just to say, look at this one or two, these few things I do well. God ought to be pleased with that. No, we need to look at the whole of what God says. We need to do what the end of verse 32 says. We need to change our mind. God's Word has this pernicious tendency to challenge us, to call us to rethink, and at times to change our mind and our way of living. Which is why, if we're to faithfully obey the way God wants us to, we have to be in God's Word. We have to let it be inconvenient. We have to let it be intrusive in our lives. And not just settle for the familiar parts or the easy parts, the ones we have a handle on, the ones that we've already aligned our lives to. We have to be willing to let God's Word challenge us and say, you've been doing it wrong. Change your mind. James chapter 1 warns us to not just be hearers of the Word, but doers. His second son heard the command, but he did not do it. Why do we think we can get away with that? Are we like children who, when told to go clean their room, merely relocate the mess to another place because they've learned that mom or dad don't check the closet? You know, the psalmist talks about this in Psalm 94. The, there are those who do evil and they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. I'm going to get away with this. I don't need to go all the way with obedience. But the psalm goes on to warn the sinner and to reassure the faithful. He who planted the ear hears. He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. If, we, if our obedience is lip service, we may sing of salvation or faithfulness, but he knows our thoughts. We may perform a convincing religious show on Sunday, but he sees every other day. 
as well. We can talk about God all the day long and have all of our, our I's dotted and our T's crossed in our theology. But if we are not doing what we say we ought to do, God knows. He sees. And that obedience is not enough. There's a third kind of obedience that Jesus commends. It's life-changing obedience. An obedience that responds by changing our lives. Again, in verse 28, the man who had two sons went to the first and says, son, go and work in the vineyard. And that son says, no, I'm not going to do it. But afterwards, he changes his mind and he goes. I want you to notice and be careful to notice that this son is not perfect. And that's good because God doesn't demand or reward perfection. At least not from us. The son is not perfect because from the very beginning he rejects the command. He is disobedient from the start. How does that work out, kids? If your parents say, go do this, and you say, how about no? Does that end well for anybody? And that's what this son does. He says, no, I will not do it. And what happens? The father is patient. He doesn't punish it right away. He is patient. God is patient with our disobedience, isn't he? How many times in the Bible do we see somebody rejecting God at first, and then God is patient, and then they are used by the Lord? Moses, Esther, Paul, Peter, Jeremiah, Isaiah. The list goes on and on and on. Men and women who said no to the Father's command. And God, just as with Adam and Eve, did not strike them down the moment they sinned, but He is patient and gives time. Romans 3 says, in His divine forbearance, God passed over former sins. So when Jesus asked the question in verse 31, which of the two sons actually did the will of the Father? They said the first. He's showing them that even the one who seemed at first to disobey, those who do the wrong thing at first can still be the ones who do what God desires. And then he gives them an example. In verse 31, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. If you were a religious leader, a chief priest, an elder, and you hear Jesus mention the tax collectors and the prostitutes in the context of this parable of an obedient son and a disobedient son, which one do you think they're assuming the tax collectors and prostitutes, those horrible, wretched people, belong to? Of course they're the disobedient ones. Jesus says, no, they're actually the ones that are doing the will of the Father. They're getting into the kingdom first because of what obedience looks like. In verse 32, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. It reminds me of John 6, 28, where the crowds asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And in other words, what does true obedience look like? And Jesus answers in the next verse, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. They said, what are the works that we need to do? And Jesus said, there's one work, and it's not a do, it's a believe. So does that mean we don't do anything? Does that mean that, that all we have to do is believe in Jesus? That's it. Nothing has to change. God saves us by grace, therefore our works don't matter. No. 
No, that's not true. Because when we believe something, we do something. And if you don't do the doing, that shows you're not really believing the believing. Does that make any sense to anybody beyond me? Okay. If you believe something, you do something. If I believe that my children are out on 3rd Street and they're about to be run over by a herd of wild rhinos. Sorry, I was watching Jumanji recently. You know, if I actually believe that, I'm going to do something about it. And if I say I believe it and do nothing, then do I really believe it? Believing leads to doing. And without the doing, there's probably not the believing. The commands of God to His children are not a to-do list for how to achieve salvation. They are instead instructions on what believing looks like. If you believe, this is what it's going to look like in your life. It's a pattern for living out the gospel. So these tax collectors, these prostitutes, these sinners that Jesus speaks of, it says they believe. Did they just believe and then go on as they were? Absolutely not. Scripture shows us Zacchaeus, the tax collector, uh, after encountering the message of salvation, he believed, and then because he believed, he repaid everybody that he had cheated. And he gave out of his treasury to the poor. The woman who had been caught in adultery was told, go out and sin no more. I don't condemn you. Now go out and sin no more. Levi, Matthew, invited all of his business associates, his other tax collector friends, to come and meet Jesus and hear from him and learn from him. Believing has a look. It has an appearance, a way of life that follows. Are you doing the work that God requires? The question really is, are you believing in Jesus? But then we have to ask, what does believing look like? What does believing the Gospel look like? Believing that I am forgiven means that I don't dwell on my past failures and sins. Believing that I am made in the image of God means I don't look to the world for my standard of who or what I should be, but instead look to God for what type of person I should be. Believing that I'm forgiven by grace means that I don't look down on other people. I have no basis on which to judge them because I'm not better than them. Never have been, never will be. Believing that I could not have saved myself but needed God to intervene means that I don't try to force other people to change and become good people because that's not how I was saved. I couldn't become the person God wanted to be on my own effort. Neither will anyone else. Instead, I pray that the Holy Spirit will change. Believing that Jesus is Lord means that I don't make my plans and live my way and then pray for God to bless it. Instead means I immerse myself in God's values, God's purposes, God's plans, God's kingdom. And then I order my time, my money, my life around that. Believing has a look. And the worst sinners, the most disobedient people in Jesus' day knew that. And they were blessed. I'm worried that whether through my own poor communication or through your own heart's bias, what you might be hearing, some of you, is that God gives us commands and He wants us to obey them. And if we obey, we are, He is pleased and we are saved. In case you've heard that or thought that from anything we see here, I want to clarify that no one... Not the obedient son, not the disobedient son, not the avoiding crowd. None of them are as obedient as they would need to be in God's mind. 
Certainly not the ones who avoided. Definitely not the ones who obeyed insufficiently, but not even those who did what they were called to do. No one obeys enough. Our hope is not in finally getting our act together. And what I don't want you to hear me saying is, come on, people, get it together. Be obedient. Don't hear that from me. That's not what I'm saying. Because our hope is not that we will obey. Our hope is that there is one and only one obedient Son. A few minutes ago, we looked at Romans 3. I want to look at that verse again in context. Verse 23 of Romans 3 says, All have sinned. We are all equally. doesn't matter the degree or the details of your sin. We are all disobedient. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, verse 24 goes on to say, However, we've been justified by His grace as a gift. Justified. We are made obedient. We are given the appearance of obedience by a gracious gift of God. Verse 24, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ by His blood. It is the death of Jesus that makes you obedient. As we take the Lord's Supper today, as we prepare our hearts for that, we witness there the perfect obedience of the Son of God. In Philippians 2, it says that being found in human form, and what we celebrate here is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That's how God can look at our our disobedience and be pleased to receive us. Jesus didn't just say, I will do the Father's will like the second son. He went all the way and did it at the cost of His own life. And so, Romans 3.25 says, that is how God is able to be patient. Not because He knows you'll eventually get your act together, Not because He's going to give you one more chance, one more chance, one more chance. God can be patient because the price of your disobedience has already been paid in Jesus Christ. And His divine forbearance, His divine sin, He has passed over your former sins. Now what does He require? He requires that you change your mind. That you believe. Believe that that is enough. And when you believe that, you live differently. And when you live that way, Scripture says, you are entering the kingdom of God. So let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper and be blessed by that today. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would grant us the grace that we need to obey. We who have rejected Your Word at first, we who perhaps avoided the need to obey Your command, we pray that in Your patience we would find the strength to obey. But as we are reminded here at this table, we do not obey because we are better than others. We obey because One has taken our place and You have given us His obedience in Your sight. Encourage our hearts by that today. We pray. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night that He was betrayed, gave us this supper as a reminder. A reminder that we don't come to His presence as obedient sons and daughters. We don't show up here and partake because we are the good ones. We are the obedient ones and therefore we get this privilege. That's the opposite of what this tells us. This tells us that you come here and your ability to stand before God is not possible 
unless someone takes your place in being punished for your sin. And that one was Jesus Christ. He is the obedient Son. Scripture says that that the Lord sees us in His clothed in Christ. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He takes His obedience and places it on us, covering up our filthiness. So when the Lord sees us, He sees us as if we are righteous, perfect, obedient. We don't deserve that. None of you deserve that. I don't deserve that. So do not, do not stumble as you come to the table, feeling as if you don't deserve to be here. The point is you don't deserve to be here. The point is you have a Savior who gives you what you need, even though you don't deserve it. But we are warned. We are warned in Scripture of several things. One of them very, very closely related to this parable. That if you are one who says you will do the will of the Father, who professes faith, but in reality you have no intention of obeying the Father's command, then all you have here is the promise of judgment. The promise that God punishes sin. And if He's not punishing your sin in Jesus, He's going to punish it in you. So this is a warning to those with a false faith. It's also a warning to those who are truly disciples, truly of the body of Christ, that if you have done anything, whether it's withholding forgiveness from one who has sinned against you, or whether it is you yourself who you know you've sinned against someone and you, for whatever reason, have not gone to make it right. We are warned to first be reconciled to our brothers and sisters before sharing in the very sacrament that speaks of our unity, that we are one in Christ. So as I pray in a moment, if you need to, take the time to check your heart and to make right what is wrong. And commit before the Holy Spirit to take whatever steps are necessary to be right before God. This is not only for the members of this church. This is for all who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and trust Him for their salvation and join themselves to His body. All are welcome. Let us pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, You have obeyed when we did not. You have borne the penalty that we had deserved. And we have here a reminder of that. Would you seal these promises on our hearts that without your covenant, we could not be before the Father. But you have promised that you will save. And you have done all that you have promised. We pray that we would be strengthened in our faith, encouraged in our obedience, as we declare not only your death, but your life, and your imminent return with what we receive here. Strengthen us by faith in Jesus' name.